Hello and welcome to another episode of Twimmel Talk, the podcast where I interview interesting people doing interesting things in machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. This week on the podcast, we're featuring a series of conversations from the NIPS conference in Long Beach, California. This was my first time at NIPS and I had a great time there. I attended a bunch of talks and, of course, learned a ton. I organized an impromptu roundtable on building AI products, and I met a bunch of wonderful people, including some former Twimmel Talk guests. I'll be sharing a bit more about my experiences at NIPS via my newsletter, which you should take a second right now to subscribe to at twimmelai.com newsletter. This week, through the end of the year, we're running a special listener appreciation contest to celebrate hitting 1 million listens on the podcast and to thank you all for being so awesome. Tweet to us using the hashtag Twimmel1Mill to enter. Everyone who enters is a winner and we're giving away a bunch of cool Twimmel swag and other mystery prizes. If you're not on Twitter or want more ways to enter, Visit twimmelai.com slash twimmel1mil for the full rundown. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank our friends over at Intel Nirvana for their sponsorship of this podcast and our NIPS series. While Intel was very active at NIPS with a bunch of workshops, demonstrations, and poster sessions, their big news this time was the first public viewing of the Intel Nirvana Neural Network Processor, or NNP. The goal of the NNP architecture is to provide the flexibility needed to support deep learning primitives while making the core hardware components as efficient as possible, giving neural network designers powerful tools for solving larger and more difficult problems while minimizing data movement and maximizing data reuse. To learn more about Intel's AI products group and the Intel Nirvana NNP, visit intelnirvana.com. In this episode, I sit down with Timnit Gebru, postdoctoral researcher at Microsoft Research in the Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics in AI, or FATE, group. I've been following Timnit's work for a while now and was really excited to get a chance to sit down with her at the conference. We packed a ton into this conversation, especially keying in on her recently released paper, Using Deep Learning and Google Street View to Estimate the Demographic Makeup of the U.S., Timnit describes the pipeline she developed for this research and some of the challenges she faced building an end-to-end model based on Google Street View images, census data, and commercial car vendor data. We also discussed the role of social awareness in her work, including an explanation of how domain adaptation and fairness are related, and her view on the major research directions in the domain of fairness. Timnit is also one of the organizers behind the Black in AI group, which held a very interesting symposium and poster session at NIPS. I'll link to the group's page in the show notes. This was a really interesting conversation and one that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Timnit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. What is the FATE group at Microsoft Research? FATE stands for Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics in AI. And it was it's a very new group started by Kate Crawford and Hannah Wallach. 
And there's some other people there, like, you know, Jen Wartman, Vaughn, and some economists and some computational social scientists. So it's a combination of machine learning people and social science and economics people trying to study the societal implications of AI and just make sure that we create algorithms that are fair. So our research is focused towards that. Oh, wow. And how did you get interested in fairness in AI in particular and artificial intelligence in general? You know, my background is in computer vision, and as I was working on, there's a number of things. I've always been interested in social justice, and towards the end of my PhD, I saw this ProPublica article about a software that was being used by judges to, yeah, the crime or citizenism, to figure out a person's likelihood of committing a crime again. Right. And judges were, this was one of the inputs that they used to figure out your, like, how how many years they should sentence you to prison. This being some machine learning algorithm. Mm -hmm. That's being sold, that was sold by North Point, I think is the name of Mm -hmm. the startup. And that was very terrifying for me, knowing, you know, because I had the background to know, like, what kind of biases we have in the criminal justice system already and what kind of biases we have in, in, you know, how much discrimination there is in the data that would be trained for it. So that was one. And then while I was working on my PhD, I kind of figured that my my work, my own work could be susceptible to this kind of bias as well, because my whole work was trying to show that we can do data mining using images. So large scale computer vision plus Mm -hmm. data, you know, like most people use text and social networks and other kinds of textual data to do data mining. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of my PhD was to show that we could gain useful societal information using images. And so if if the ground truth for that that you use to train is biased, you're going to have, you know, biased conclusions. So I right. I thought that I should be very cognizant of what kinds of issues could exist with that type of work, given yeah. that my work lies in that type of work. Okay. And now you're relatively new at the at Microsoft, is that right? I am. Yeah, I started in in July. Yeah, I'm very new. (laughs) Awesome. And you just published your first paper with the group? Is that right? No, no, no. So my paper that just came out in PNAS is actually from from my PhD. Oh, really? So this is a project that took four years. Wow. So I think, you know, it's more... When I give talks about it, I think people understand the level, the amount of work it went into it, but it's harder to see, I think, just from that one paper. But yeah, like that paper took a very long time and it just got published. Wow. So tell us about that paper. So this paper was using Google Street View images to predict demographic characteristics. So what we did was we detected and classified cars, all the cars in 15 million Google Street View images across 200 American cities. And then we were able to use the characteristics of the cars that we detected and classified, you know, in a particular zip code or precinct and associated that with certain demographic characteristics like income or political affiliation. Mm. Like an earlier paper we had, even we did like we looked at income segregation levels and even like CO2 emission rates. So we then, you know, once we detected and classified the cars, we represented each geographic region like Basically, for us, it would be like a zip code or a precinct, like a you know pre- a voting precinct. We represented by like the type, the features that of the cars that are in that uh, okay. zip code. So, for example, the percentage of Hondas or the percentage of each make that you have, that's one feature, right? Okay. Like percentage of Toyotas or Hondas or or like Nissans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Percentage of sedans, you know, other metadata like the average miles per gallon, like efficiency of that particular zip code, etc. So once we had that information, then we used ground truth census data or other data, depending on what we're trying to predict, 
to train another model to go from the car features to like predicting demographic characteristics. Okay. So that's that's the project. Interesting, yeah. interesting. <laughs> so you mentioned census data as part of your training data set. When I think of the the kinds of things that you're trying to predict for, like the you know the wealth or income of mm-hmm. a geographic area, that's already in the the census data. So mm-hmm. how would someone use this technique? Oh, so what we did is, so we had 200 cities in our data set, right? Okay. So we used a subset of our cities for training. Okay. So we assume we have census data for like, let's say, I think is it 13% of, of you know, or we sweep it to see like how mm-hmm. much training data we need. But like, we assume we have census data for a small, very small subset of the cities that we have, and then we train a model using, and then for the rest of the cities, we don't have census data, we only have sure. images and cars. So I guess the way we someone would use it is if you have census data for some cities and you want to try to see, like, you know, for other cities what the data might be, mm-hmm. you could train our model using the census data that you have, and then the cars that are detected in the other cities, Okay. right? So that's how we used it. and. You know, we also did some experiments in trying to do this across time. So say you have data for past census data for New York, like we we had it using Google Street View time-lapse data. So for Mm -hmm. New York, and you have a bunch of images as well, can you then try to predict what's going to happen in the future or, Mm -hmm. you know, like before you have the census data? So we did some experiments like that as well. So, you know, for me, this is kind of like, I don't want people to, like, read too much into into the, the cars, you know, mm-hmm. thing. For me, it's it's a proof of concept, basically, like, a new tool that you can use to do this kind of analysis, like demography or social mm-hmm. science applications or work. You know, it's like a new tool right. that is available to researchers. And we want to show if one were, you know, say you wanted to study the, I don't know, relationship between trees or tree species and people's mm-hmm. health or something, you know, how mm-hmm. would you go about using images to do that? Well, now that you saw our paper, you could like apply a very similar pipeline to it, you know? Mm, Got it. So that's, that's more what I want the takeaway to be. Um, It's not specifically about cars, you know, projecting income based on cars. It's more about, we've got all of this visual data from mm -hmm. cameras and sensors and things like that. How can we use that as proxy for any other thing that we might want to. And for us, like cars, you know, there's a, you know, like there are other things you could study where the only data you could probably have is probably only visual data, right? Like, so for cars, you could argue that that's not necessarily the case. You can use DMV data, right? But I guess our street view gives you a different perspective, which is you're not looking at the cars of the people who necessarily live there. You're just saying, if I were to just walk around the street, you know, what does that street look like, right? Like what kind of cars are driving? What kind of cars are parked? That's kind of, and then what does that tell me about the people who live there? Right. For me, I'm most excited about the tool, you know, and, and this pipeline. I'm not, you know, and I, and I was very, very surprised that our, our thing actually worked, you know, because there's a lot of stuff. You know, I was very surprised. There's a lot of stuff that could go wrong because the pipeline, there's many, many different components of it. Well, and can you walk us through the pipeline? Yeah, so so the biggest thing is a lot of people in AI don't talk about this, but it's it's data collection is, is right. huge. So if you wanna do any sort of supervised machine learning and you wanna do it in in the real world, right? We're not like talking about a toy data set here. Right. So we were saying what is our end goal? Our end goal is to detect and classify all the cars and fifty million Google Street View images and then to predict demographics using that, right? So to get to that 
end goal, we first have to figure out, oh, okay, like how are we gonna, okay, how are we gonna get data? How are we gonna get labeled data? Like how are we gonna, how are we gonna label cars in Google Street View images? This is very hard. Well, even getting the data, is that easily accessible via an API or did you have to scrape them or? Yeah, yeah. they have an API and okay. it, these are publicly available images. Okay. But so then, you know, we had to be like, okay, so what are the, all the different types of cars? around that we might see in Google Street View right. images. Where do we get that list? Right. So we found Edmunds.com and they have all the cars since 1990. So it was about 15,000 types of cars. But guess what? A computer vision algorithm can only, you know, we can only really kind of classify cars based on what they look on the outside. And these, you know, a subset of these 15,000 cars look the same. Because they don't, they don't change them, you know, from year to year or from trim to trim or whatever. So we had to figure out how to cluster the cars that look the same. So we had a paper on this. It was a Kai paper. It was more of an HCI work. How do we get our initial subset of classes where we bucket like cars that look the same into one class? Mm. And then that 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 process in and of itself took a few months by the way you know because you know you try something it doesn't work try something else you know so we did that and so this is unsupervised you're just clustering the cars that you're seeing in the images or semi-supervised because you're using it i guess you could say it's yeah so so what we do is we show we use amazon mechanical turk and we show people it's a graph-based algorithm like we show people images two images of cars so we have example images of cars from Edmunds.com. Okay. And so we show people, we say, are these two cars the same or different? And like we have... We Meaning have, one um, of them is from Street View and the other is from No, no, this is Edmunds? all from Edmunds. So right oh, really? now, we're not even... Okay, we haven't even gotten <laughs> to getting labeled data right now. Right. We're trying to define what our classes are. Okay. What does class one mean? Class one means 2,500, core 2,600, core 2,000, you know, 700, okay. because all of them look the same. So we haven't even started getting data. We're just starting to define what our classes are. Okay. Okay, That already takes a lot of time. That's the first thing you got to do. Right. The second one, once you define what your classes are, then for each of those classes, you have to have labeled data to train your car detector, right? So that's where we need the experts for Google Street View images. We also scrape data from like e-commerce sites Mm -hmm. like cars.com and craigslist.com, but you know, this is why domain adaptation exists. If you just, you know, train a plane like CNN or some sort of supervised machine learning algorithm on things that look like, you know, cars from Craigslist Mm -hmm. and try to test it on cars, you know, try to like detect cars in Google Street View or classify cars in Google Street View, it's not going to work. Right. The distribution looks very, very different. So then there's a whole like, then uh, I had an ICCV paper where, we, we did, like, we had a, it's a domain adaptation-based paper. Okay. So I think, actually, this data set is a very good domain adaptation data set. And, um, and why don't we do, like, an inset here on domain adaptation? What's the 30-second overview of domain adaptation? So domain adaptation is a subset of what people call transfer learning. So domain adaptation is, like, you have one task, one, right. one exact task. And we have something that we call a source domain and a target domain. So in, in our example, let's say the source domain is cars from e-commerce sites, craigslist.com. And let's say the target domain is cars from like Google Street View images. Okay. And so what you try to do in domain adaptation is you, you, you assume that you have labeled data in the source domain. Mm-hmm. But in the target domain, you know, in unsupervised adaptation, you assume you have no labeled data. So in unsupervised, we would assume that we don't have any images in Google Street View that are labeled with the types of cars they contain. That's unsupervised. In fully supervised adaptation, we would assume that in Google Street View, 
we have labeled images for all classes. And then in semi-supervised, we would assume that in Google Studio, which is our target domain, we have labeled you know, data for a subset of our classes. Okay. So the, the idea of domain adaptation is when your training set and your test set have different distributions, how can you best use them you know, in, within these different domains, assuming, you know, making these different assumptions that we just talked about, how can you best use data in your social domain, I guess in conjunction with data in your target domain, to maximize your accuracy on the target domain? Okay. Right. So this is a very real in the real world. This is usually the case because you're never going to have like camera statistics are different, you know, occlusion or whatever. So like if you have a training set from like Google images or, you know, you want search images or something Mm -hmm. and then you're you're like, you know, you want to apply it, your model to like some other thing. Yeah. That has a different statistic. You need to know about adaptation techniques. You know, and when I think about Google Street View images, all those images have, you know, from the perspective, like they have a very specific kind of look that's different from anything you'd ever see on Edmunds or any oh, other yeah, car Oh yeah, because site. Edmunds, you know, I'm trying to sell you my car, so I want right. to give you the best perspective. Like you have a, a really nice resolution. It's in one car in the middle. There's no other car like occluding this car. There's no trees or like, you know, I don't know. Like there's, it's very, very different. You don't, you know, there's cars in Google Street View where a, you only see like. It's a staged image. It's a. Yeah. 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 You, there's cars in Google Street View where you only see like a couple of lights or something like that. Or you have this <laughs> side, in, you know, view. So. So that's where, you know, I'm very interested in, in the domain adaptation problem okay. because of that. This project helped me decide what core machine learning and computer vision areas I'm very interested in. Mm. Because of this, it's domain adaptation. Okay. The second one is data collection. Efficient data, like basically what some people call efficient machine learning. A data efficient machine learning. So I would say domain adaptation is part of it how to efficiently collect data sets. So when I think of data efficient machine learning, I think of like one shot, few shot, few machine shot, learning, that, that kind, kind of, of anything, you know, I haven't done too much on few shot, one shot learning, whatever. Okay. I don't know. The semantics sometimes kind of like confuse me, but what, <laughs> you know, but just any, and basically, so because data collection does not sound fun, I don't think AI people are, you know, in computer vision, we, a lot of us work on it. And there's even people doing like a hybrid computer vision HCI kind of work, mm-hmm. especially in our labs from the very beginning, like a lot of people were always working on data collection because we don't want to work on toy problems. Like you can't, you right. can only do so much with MNIST, you know, you can only gain, <laughs> you can only gain so much insight, you know what I mean? Into like what kind of problems we should be solving if you're always just using like, you know, readily available data so that you can get right. to the next like conference deadline or something like that. You know, I'm not saying you should always spend so much time collecting data, but I'm saying you should do it at least a couple of times in your life just to see, you know, where AI is right now if we were want to apply it to the real world, you know? So this project really, really like, I would say that, I mean, I was complaining about it the whole time I was working on it, but now that it's over, it really cemented like what I think is really important to do to work on Mm -hmm. and and actually the issue of bias also came up in this project because in an earlier paper you know we also we're just trying to see like okay we can predict this we can predict that and one of the things we looked into was crime crime rates right so so and and with crime rates as you know the ground truth whatever ground truth we're going to have is biased because all we know is who got arrested for the crime whose crime got reported so if i say hey look with images we can you know with cars we can do this then that's already biased, right? So so basically, like, if I'm going to do this type of work, if I'm going to continue to do this type of work, I have to I have to also be working on the bias and fairness and other types of issues. 
And what's really interesting is that domain adaptation and this whole fairness thing are very, very related, actually. Okay, how I so? I just noted. Well, like, so some of the techniques that you can even use that people, some people have even already used are very related. So one of the ways in which people do domain adaptation is to say, you know, say, you know, I want a classifier. Let, let's say your classifier has a, a primary task, which is to classify something, maybe the type of car in my image, right? And so I want that classifier to do well, regardless of what domain my image comes from, wh- whether or not it's Craigslist or, you know, whether it's Craigslist or Google Street View, right? So the way some people do this, and there's many variations of this, is they have another classifier. And the other classifier, all it does is it uses the features that its input is the features learned by the first classifier. And so the input is the f- those features. And the output is, you know, which domain the image came from, Craigslist or Google Street View, right? Mm. So then the first classifier, in its job is, in addition to accurately classifying the car, its job is to also confuse the second classifier. Because if the second classifier can't tell, based on the features learned by the first classifier, which domain the image came right. from, then it means you, you've learned features that are sort of domain invariant, correct? Right. Now, can you see how you, you might apply this to fairness? So say that you want to classify something like, you know, your risk score right. or something like this. You want to say... If my other classifier can identify some class that I don't want to yeah, be identified Yeah, so say you want this set. to be like, you know, invariant to like your race or something. So then you can have another classifier that classifies the race of the person. And then you this first one confuses the other. You know, now, now like there's work already that does this and, you know, it's not like a done deal is not solved because then there's different fairness criteria and then like which criteria do you use, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I do think that these two things, like I, you know, these two fields are kind of very related. Yeah. And it's so weird to me because I didn't think about that when I got interested <laughs> in both of them. I didn't think about that at all. And now I'm like, oh, wait a minute, you know? Interesting. So, yeah. Now this, this last thing you were describing, it sounds like it, like the kind of thing we see in adversarial networks. Is yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you people have done it with adversarial networks. So you can implement it with adversarial networks. You don't have to implement with adversarial networks. There's okay. other works that use like a different loss function. Like there's work called, there's the gradient reversal work from a way, way, way back. It was like 2014 okay. or something like that. There's also domain confusion loss. So Judy, who is, well, was a postdoc in our lab, and I had a paper at ICCV where I used her loss from like a, okay. a, diff- a prior paper of hers, which was not adversarial. But it's very, again, like it's funny that people independently were working on this idea by the time Ian came up with with his adversarial networks right. thing, with his GAN thing. And then once he came up with the GANs thing, they're like, oh, wait a minute, we could just use GANs right. <laughs> for this. But that's another thing I find interesting is that like this, this idea was kind of concurrently being thought of by other people. Interesting. And so... How do you take this forward in your new role at Microsoft? Oh, so at Microsoft, I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff right now. Like, so Joy Bulmamini from MIT is here, by the way. And she and I have a paper that is hopefully going to come out at this new Fairness Conference. Okay. Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics in AI Conference. It's a whole conference in oh, February. Oh, when is that? In, in February. February. Okay. It's in New York. Yeah. Okay. So I'm part of the steering committee there. So we have this paper that's basically doing algorithmic audits. Mm-hmm. It's going to come out soon, so you can read about it when it comes out. And then I'm also working on this idea of like standardizing 
so we basically want to standardize what kind of information you should put out with your, you know, data sets or pre-trained models or whatever. Like, so I've been telling everybody about this. Like, so we, you know, I used to be a hardware engineer and hardware, we have a data sheet that comes with every component. And like, mm. when you're a, a circuit designer, you, you would be very intimately familiar with the data sheet right. and you would call the designers and all this stuff before you design something into your model, right? Mm. So yet, that process... We'll pull down a data set we're and not doing put that. it in our trainer model yeah, on it without and then thinking so, about... You, know, you have an API that, you, that someone releases an API that right. you have to pay for. With really, you have no information about how they, you know, you really have zero information about how are you, are you supposed to, you know, is it supposed to work on this new data set that you're right. using? You know, are there recommended applications? Like, what's going to happen if you use it the wrong way? Like, and it's, it's very dangerous because in hardware, at least, you know, I think the reason things were very, it's a mature field, but things that were, were standardized because the failure mode is so, it's visible to most people, to everyone, right? Like your battery catches fire or something like that. Whereas here could be visible to some people, you know, it might not be like, if face recognition doesn't work for you because you're black or something like that, it'll be visible, very visible to you. It won't be visible for other people because they didn't test it out or something like this. So, right, right. Okay, so it's, you know, because probability is involved, it's, you know, might not even be uniformly visible in the class that's affected. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, you know, like we, a lot of people aren't, weren't even doing these tests. Uh-huh. So like the first thing we have to start doing is like doing these audits, audits right. you know. So stuff like this that I'm working on, I'm also working on, you know, just like I was telling you, you know, models that, that are fairer, you know, what is the fairness criterion. I'm very, you know, I've learned a lot about this field. So I... I'm pretty new to this field, and now I've, like, gotten embedded in the community, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean is to the fairness community. So, yeah, like, so kind of working from the from the purely machine learning perspective, you know, like, how can we have you know, account for fairness criterion in our models? Mm-hmm. That's very broad. But, like, that's one of the things I'm working on, in addition to just, like, my regular computer vision kind of work, uh-huh. like domain adaptation, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so that's how I'm I'm taking this to my new role at MSR. Okay, interesting. I'm really interested in this conference. I'll need to get some info from you about it and check it out. What are some of the other kind of major research directions in the domain of fairness? So I think that uncovering bias is one. Okay. So Joy and I just did this paper that's coming out where like we were auditing, you know, commercial gender classification APIs that are sold by people that you have to pay for and looking at disparities among certain groups by skin color, by gender. And then, you know, Meg Mitchell just came out with this paper. So I'm just talking about computer vision because actually in computer vision, it's very new. People have been doing this stuff for like, you know, there is this, I don't know, have you heard of this? Man is to programmer as woman is to a homemaker. That's the title, Uh, I guess, paper. Yeah, I've seen a few various... Yeah. So, you know, and so I think in computer vision, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get into it. I felt like computer vision, people weren't thinking about this. Whereas NLP, it's been a little uh, bit more NLP more people first. Yeah, Meg is in NLP. Even Hannah does some NLP and like, I mean, does NLP and like even and also theory people. I feel like in terms of technical people, theory people were starting to think about it. Okay. Privacy people like Cindy Dork and other, you know, like and also from the ethics side. But I felt like, okay, now deep learning people are talking about it too. And there's like papers and things like this. But like last year, I felt like, yeah, people were starting to talk about it, but it wasn't a a real, you know, concern. 
So now, like in computer vision, even we're starting to see some of these work. So one is uncovering bias, like okay. you know what kind of bias exists, and the second one is how do you mitigate it if you uncover it. So you know there's a lot of work. So with I guess the work I just talked about, the word to vec work, you know they first uncover the bias and then they tell you some strategies of mitigating that particular bias.、Mm-hmm. And then the third one, which I'm very interested in, is I'm, I'm interested in all of them, right? But the third one is also just like understanding how these things are being used. So if you have and how to standardize them, how to have transparency. Like if you have law enforcement that's using inaccurate face recognition algorithms,、right. where are they using it? How are they using it?、Yeah. Well, you know, we have no idea.、Right. And also, just like you know, there's people who are using your social network data to like then selling it to other people or trying to figure out like your credit ratings and things like they're startups, right? Kathy O'Neill talks about it in her book. Have you read this book, Weapons、no. of Math Destruction? Okay. Yeah. So I've heard you of know, it, and it's on my list. But yeah, I mean, and so that's that's a very important part of the issue, actually, because as as AI researchers, a lot of times, I mean, me included, okay,、yeah. like I just want to sit in a corner, read my papers, you know, and <laughs> and and I honestly write some code. That's what I that's what I love doing most.、Uh-huh. Still, you know, even though I do this whole like social activism stuff. Like what? I, what I enjoy doing is just just like reading papers, doing thinking about ideas, writing code, right? But we have to understand like what the implications of our work are, you know. And so, like keeping track of, I just signed this extreme vetting letter against this extreme vetting initiative. I don't know if you've heard about it by the DHS. Yeah. That was trying to use. I didn't even know about it until、Use、I was. Social network data. Yeah, until to, I was asked to sign this letter, I had no idea this was going on, and it's terrifying. Yeah. You know, like so, this kind of stuff we have to keep track of, and we、right. have to make our voices heard. In、mm-hmm. addition to, you know, working on uncovering bias and mitigating bias. Right. Awesome. Well, I know you've got to run off to、uh, talk. Yes. So let's wrap it up here. But if you have any final words or thoughts or places that folks should be, you know, looking to keep up with all this information or finding you, yeah, now's the time. Well, I recently got on Twitter. <laughs> I was told it's a good thing. Wow. So yeah, I'm Tamika Ruz. My my Twitter. I、okay. mean, I have a website, so I will be. Releasing data soon for this monstrous work that I that we just discussed、okay. the PNAS paper, and look out for my my new yeah paper with Joy as well, which、okay. is going to be released in a couple weeks. All right, well we'll link to you on Twitter in the show notes as well as to your homepage, and looking forward to following this line of research and the stuff you do at Microsoft. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Timnit or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelai.com/talk/slash88. To follow along with the Nip series, visit twimmelai.com/slash/nips2017. To enter our Twimmel One Mill contest, visit twimmelai.com/slash/twimmel One Mill. Of course. We'd be delighted to hear from you either via a comment on the show notes page, or via a tweet to @twimmelai or @samcharrington. Thanks once again to Intel Nirvana for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about the Intel Nirvana NNP and the other things Intel's been up to in the AI arena, visit intelnirvana.com. As I mentioned a few weeks back, this will be our final series of shows for the year. 
So take your time and take it all in and get caught up on any of the old pods you've been saving up. Happy holidays and happy new year. See you in 2018. And of course, thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.